Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. K is for Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay Kemp, born 3rd of May 1938 near Liverpool. His father, Norman, was a naval officer who'd met and married uh, Marie Gilmore in South Shields on the northeast coast. Norman and Marie's first child had been a daughter named Norma, who died from meningitis at the age of five. So Lindsay was conceived very much to take his sister's place for her uh, inconsolable mother. Yeah, what a tragedy. Yeah. So, along with her costumes and the miniature Japanese kimonos and fans her father had brought back from the Orient, he also inherited his sister's talent for dancing and entertainment. So he really was kind of like filling the role, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, you know? sure. Um, uh, but anyway, for, yeah. But two and a half years later, tragedy struck again. Norman's ship was struck by a German torpedo, and he was not amongst the survivors. Wow. Uh, according to Kemp, he danced from early childhood. He said, uh, I'd dance on the kitchen table to entertain the neighbours. I mean, it was a novelty in South Shield to see a little boy in full makeup dancing on point. Finally, it got a bit too much for my mother and she decided to send me to boarding school at the age of eight, hoping it would knock some sense into me. Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, you would have to say, wouldn't you, doing all of this in South Shields at that point in time is, is a pretty brave. I mean, he's a kid and he's just following his instinct and his heart yeah. and it's so brilliant. But it must have been quite awkward for his mum just to get to grips with exactly what was going on. Yeah, it sounds a bit like a template for Billy Elliot, this, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what yeah. you mean, actually, yeah. mate. Yeah, so Kemp's mother moved away from South Shields and Kemp attended Bearwood College near Wokingham, a school for the sons of merchant seamen. And he used to dance in working men's clubs in a very feminine kind of way, which didn't go down well. That's what it says here. No kidding. This just shows the courage of him. Yeah. Uh, he and his mother later moved to Bradford, Yorkshire, where Kemp attended Bradford Art College before studying dance with Hilda Holger and a mime artist uh, called Marcel Marceau. Wow, okay. Which is, you're right at the very top of yeah. it there. If you, can't, if you can't learn the trade from Marcel Marceau, then you can't learn it. Give up mime, I'd say. In the late 50s, living in London and usually penniless, Kemp's apprenticeship consisted of dancing with various small but ambitious dance groups, including the John Broom Dance Theatre. He'd also studied with Broom in Bradford earlier than that. The Hilda Holger Company, as mentioned, and the Charles Weedman Company uh, on his visits to London. His unquenchable thirst for uh, performing meant that he was very enthusiastic about appearing in numerous short-lived shows of all kinds. So he really learnt on the job, so he just learned by performing and what he liked and what he didn't like. Yeah, well, it was in him, wasn't it? It was just in him. So in 1960, he made his London Western debut in the chorus line of Terry Rattigan's musical Joie de Vivre at the Queen's Theatre and this was followed by a long provincial tour of Oklahoma (laughs) I put the question mark in there where he was an unlikely but eye-catching chorus cowboy I bet he was oh okay brilliant on returning to London he teamed up with two female friends to form a cabaret act they called themselves the Trio Lindsay then he formed his own dance company in the early 60s and first attracted attention with an appearance at the Edinburgh Festival in 1968 Okie dokie. So his stage performances include... Puero in Turquoise. Which we'll just call a clown show from mm. here on in. Flowers. Salome. Mr Punch Pantomime. <laughs> Mr Punch's Pantomime. And A Midsummer Night's Dream and many more. Yeah, okay. Uh, most of these, or most of these works, in collaboration with the composer Carlos Miranda. Okay, so he staged and performed in Davy Bowie's Ziggy Stardust concerts at the London Rainbow Theatre in August 1972 and with Jack Burkett appears in the promotional video for Bowie's single John I'm Only Dancing which was, as we know, directed by Mick Rock. Kemp's film roles included a support role in Kate Bush's short film The Line, The Cross and The Curve in 1994, a dancer and cabaret performer in Derek Jarman's Sebastian and Jubilee, retrospectively, a pantomime dame in Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine and the pub landlord Alda McGregor in Anthony Schaefer's 
The Wicker Man. Now, it's strange casting that. Because it it's is. A very, it's a very camp role that he's playing there, and he's supposed to be the father of Brit Eklund. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. the, the pub landlord. But what a film. Oh, I mean, you know, it, it is. It's one of those films where you have to say, if you could have a cameo in a British film, oh. that would have to be on your list. It's well, classic. We were in ho- uh, on holiday in Scotland last year, and we, unbeknownst to us, we were very, very close to all the filming locations for The Wicker Man, so we decided to make it, you know, we, we trawled across all of them, even to the site on the coast where the big Wicker Man originally was constructed and all the rest of it, and went to the pub where, uh, well, where Lindsay Kemp was supposedly the landlord. Wow. It was okay. amazing. That's Great. impressive. During the early 70s, Kemp was a popular and inspirational teacher of dance and mime. So, of course, you go Bowie and Kate Bush were amongst his students. Kate Bush later wrote the song Moving, which appeared on a debut album, The Kick Inside, as a tribute to Kemp. In 1979, he left England for Spain and then Italy. And by 2002, he had homes in Rome and Todi. Where's Todi? That's in uh, Perugia. Is it really? Italy, You've done yes. some research so here, haven't you, Bob? That, Mark. You cheeky boy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to Google it, see how you pronounced it. Good man. Okay, so his filmography. Mm. The Vampire Lovers. I love that film, 1970. I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, why'd you love that film? Yeah, I just love it. Yeah, uh, there's a jester in that. Apparently. He is, yeah. Savage Messiah, 1972, was Angus Corky. Okay, the Wicker Man, as we know, Alda McGregor. He plays top star in The Stud in 74. A dancer in Sebastian, mentioned. A cabaret performer in Jubilee, as mentioned. A mortician in Valentino. Uh, he's in A Midsummer Night's Dream for TV as Puck in 1985. OK, uh, Cartoline, Italian. Um, uh, what's that? I, I think that translates as Italian postcards, Mark. Oh, does it, right? Yeah, 1987, <laughs> beautifully put, though. He's also in The Line, The Cross on the Curve, as mentioned, as The Guide. Yeah, Velvet Goldmine, 1998, as a pantomime dame. And he makes various guest appearances in the Spanish TV show La Mandragora in 2005 and six. So we'll look at the David Bowie timeline mm. now, then, eh? OK, so the four... 4th of August 1967. And now, again, as always, we need to mention Kevin Kahn and we need to mention the book Any Day yes, Now. And yeah. if you were interested enough in David Bowie to listen to this podcast, A, thank you very much. B, give it a review. A good review. Yeah. And also, uh, just go and get Any Day Now. There's yeah. lots of great books out there. Nick Pegg's Complete David Definitely Bowie. But... David Buckley's book also as well, Strange Fascination, which uh, we've mentioned these before, but they are great. But Any Day Now, it's just uh, compelling stuff. So, yeah, the 4th of August, 1967. Accompanied by Michael Garrett on piano, mime artist Lindsay Kemp begins a two-week run of his new show, Clowns Hour, at the Little Theatre, St. Martin's Lane in Covent Garden. During the interval, David's album is played and he's informed by his girlfriend Jan who is Ken Pitt's secretary uh, who persuades him to attend the lunchtime performance now how pivotal is this work from Jan you know because what he was about to see was to help shape his following career as we know so Jan wherever you are we all need to buy you a drink yeah we salute you definitely uh, I mean, you can't underestimate Lindsay Kemp's influence on Bowie in these formative years, nope. can you? After the show, David and Jan visit Kemp in his dressing room. The singer and the mime artist are bowled over by each other's personalities. Not long after, David joins Kemp's movement uh, classes at the Covent Garden Dance Theatre and they soon conspire to work together. Kemp later said that Bowie told him at this time, oh, get this, that he planned on becoming a Buddhist monk and moving to a monastery in Scotland. Yeah, I remember all this. Maybe... Well, I wasn't there at the time, but I remember reading it before. You know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, well put. Maybe it was because of his uh, new interest in mime they didn't really take this route. In which case, oh, you know, let's get Jan two, two lots of drinks. Definitely. Yeah. Kemp said, I told him uh, you can give yourself to God and to me and the public at one and the same time 
which he did for a bit. Right, OK. Uh, Bowie then tracked Kemp down to his house. He's done this before, hasn't mm. he? Uh, with various people, where yeah. they just turn up at the houses, knock on the door, and they're like, oh, hello. Uh, but anyway, it was at my home in Bateman Buildings in Soho. I just remember him being there. I felt a bit like the Virgin Mary confronted by this vision of the Archangel Gabriel. Glowing, shining, incredibly beautiful, and immediately inspiring. And Bowie later recalled that his flat was above a strip club, and strippers would regularly pop up for cups of sugar. He said it was a circus. I joined a circus. <laughs> Brilliant. He also said, dear old Lindsay. Lindsay was a trip and a half. I've never known anyone commit suicide so many times. He lived on his emotions. He was a wonderful influence. His day-to-day life was the most theatrical thing that I'd ever seen. So Kemp, on Bowie's early appearances at his classes, he says uh, David was a huge hit with the ladies, especially during the improvisations. Improvising sailors, drowning at sea, animals hunting the prey. Those ladies would have devoured him like the maniads during Dionysus. He seemed quite pleased about all that and came back for another class. I bet he did. (laughs) (laughs) No stopping him. Yeah, no brainer there. So, uh, to November and early December 67, and Bowie is now rehearsing for his appearance in Kemp's uh, Perot, let's say Clowns in Turquoise, yeah? Which is due to open in Oxford at the end of December. Bowie's character is called Cloud. Well... But you'd have to we'll be, be, wouldn't it? We'll be, wouldn't it? Costume designer Natasha Kornilov said Kemp uh, told her that Bowie was a bit stiff, but I think we could do something with him. They did. Uh, they also let him build the props for the show, which was big of him. And during this period, uh, Bowie was also busy with his pop career, so mm. he was recording sessions for the BBC and still keeping an eye on his pop career, obviously. Uh, one, review, <laughs> one review for The Clown Show <laughs> by A. Young in the Financial Times reads thus, David Bowie is a young pop star whose songs tend to follow ambition beyond the boundaries of his talent. Ooh. Ouch. Uh, I am on his side because, amongst other reasons, he sings without a microphone. <laughs> what does that mean, Bob? <laughs> I have no idea, Bob. Right, okay. Apart from he can project his voice a bit. Maybe. Again, yeah, drawing from Kevin Cann's Any Day Now here, you'll find this uh, intriguing sentence. Uh, in the new year, the production is to move to Rosehill Theatre, an events performance base in Moresby near Whitehaven in Cumbria, where there's to be as much drama offstage as on it as David becomes entangled with both Kemp and Kornilov. Right, OK, so the plot thickens, yeah. From Kevin Can's book here, this is a, a contemporary review of that uh, show. Presented as the centrepiece attraction of the Oxford Young Playhouse Association's recent Christmas programme, The Clown Show gave Lindsay Kemp, whose work as the dwarf in Frank Hauser's uh, production of Volpone is still vividly remembered in Oxford, ample opportunities to display his impressive mimetic skill. Mimetic? That's a new one on me. It's a good one. As the clown pursues an invisible columbine, his presence is, however, subtly and often strongly suggested, entranced by his acquisition of a new and resplendent coat, uh, wrongly and viciously accused of theft, in trouble with authority and in many other moods and situations, Mr Kemp gives versatile proof of the flexible power of the wordless theatre. In more broadly comic vein, his impression of a striptease performer is informed with the same disciplined bodily plasticity and, if it were, uh, silent wit. David Bowie, the show's inventor, Inventive composer makes several striking appearances as Cloud, a multi-purposed and multi-guised character, and Jack Burkett is a compelling Harlequin. The decor and costumes of Natasha Kornilov, already much admired in Oxford as a designer for several recent Playhouse productions, brings much visual delight in terms of colour to the simple curtain setting, and her masks give keen dramatic point to the action. In these days of mass media entertainment, it's heartening to sense the successful impact which this, one of the oldest forms of living theatre, 
is having upon a predominantly young audience, many of whom are making their first acquaintance with the ageist art of mime. It goes on to say, the Oxford Young Playhouse Association are to be congratulated on their enterprise in presenting Mr Kemp's entertainment, which is shortly to be seen in London. Right, OK, so the thumbs up in the suburbs. Certainly. Well read, Bob. And oh. so, uh, yeah, we'll continue here. Kemp, allegedly, we can see this coming, uh, becoming jealous of how close Bowie and Cornilloff had become. At one point, whilst the production was in Cumbria, Kemp is rushed to hospital with slashed wrists. He returns to the production with bandaged wrists, which eventually start to show blood, something the audience were more than slightly perplexed about. Kemp said, much of the time I spent with Davy Bowie was bloody painful. The 6th of January, 1968, the production leaves Cumbria with a growing confidence, but skint. But skint, yeah. At this point, Kemp is invited to appear in a BBC play called The Pistol Shot, which he accepts. And in turn, he invites Bowie along to perform in the dance scene. So this is where Bowie met Hermione Farthingale, wasn't it? Mm. Which is, you know, we sort of generally consider Bowie's first true love. Uh, and let's be honest, you know, if Kemp is going to be jealous about this couple, this can't have helped, can it? Because there is, <laughs> they afterwards, after filming, they went off together, sort of not quite hand in hand, but more or less down to the tube station with Kemp kind of sadly looking on. Well, you know, he probably thinks, all right, I'll, I'll divert Bowie away from Natasha here. This is this is gonna this is gonna be good. This mm. and then he invites him to the TV program and him introduces him to Hermione Farthingale. Yes. So just, yeah, the... poor fella. <laughs> uh, so the 16th of March sees the run of the Clown Show at London's Mercury Theatre come to an end. So it starts a short run at the Intimate Theatre in London, perhaps inevitably due in no small part to Bowie falling head over heels with Hermione. Ian Kemp wouldn't work together again for a couple of years. So this takes us to 1970, doesn't mm. it? 29th of January 1970, to be exact. Uh, Bowie's in Scotland for a solo performance on a programme called Kerngorm Sky Night. Right. I wonder if that still exists. I doubt I'm guessing it, mate. It doesn't. And the show at Aberdeen University. At the same time, Kemp is performing in Edinburgh for a TV version of The Clown Show. And Bowie is invited back to the production, which he gladly accepts. Uh, for much of the performance, Bowie sits on top of a stepladder. <laughs> Now, obviously, this was required, but you may think, was it kind of came having a little kind of dig it, trying to get back to him in some way, perhaps? Maybe he was on the naughty step. Mm. Okay, so another two years pass after this. Bowie now having had a hit with Starman, so he's famous and he's got the world at his feet. And the ambitious three-night stint at London's Rainbow Theatre goes into rehearsals at the same venue. 10th of August, 1972, Lindsay Kemp is brought back from his new home in Scotland by Angie... Okay, to turn the rock show into a theatrical Ziggy spectacle. And three days of intensive rehearsals take place with a whole entourage uh, Saturday, 19th of August, uh, for three legendary yeah, nights. Of course, yeah. The uh, show was a massive success, as we know. The onstage antics of Lindsay Kemp and his five fellow artists running around scaffolding uh, and plinths, all right? Uh, so if you look at the stage set, it's sort of, it is wildly ambitious. Yeah. Uh, a prototype was uh, basically for what was to follow. You have to say, it really does look closer to, uh, well, well, you mentioned this, a uh, McAlpine building site. You know, it's kind of a little bit kind of experimental theatre, It is it? scaffolding. I mean, yeah. yeah. But then again, even if you think about, from what I can tell, and I never saw the tour, but, but from the, uh, the Diamond Dogs tour, it, that looks like a bit like scaffolding and stuff. The, the you know the plinth that Bowie walks across yeah. doesn't look that far away. It looks quite stark. So, yeah, so you, can, uh, you know it's not derogatory, but no, it, but it does look like a, a little bit like a building. Yeah, site. but you can see Bowie scoping out the idea, can't you? Later on for the diamond yeah, dots and all sure. the rest of it. And of course, you know, you, of course, you'd want to see it, wouldn't you? I would certainly. Okay, so on the rainbow shows, this is what Lindsay Kemp says: the set was inspired by 1920s constructivism. We assembled a set with various platforms, which David would very energetically clamber over. Sometimes 
Williams doing costume changes up the ladder. He's on the ladder again mm. of his own choice from one platform to another. My company were all in the show, perched on different levels, wearing masks. It was very high up. I was terrified as I've got a fear of heights. David emerged looking marvellous out of a lot of dry ice and the audience went crazy. I'd never performed in or directed a show in such a vast venue and so I was credited with marrying the theatre to rock and roll. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. K is for Kempit. Kenpit, you cannot overstate Kenpit's influence on David Bowie. So this is drawn from his all-music biography. Uh, Kenneth Pitt, best remembered as David Bowie's manager from about 1967 to 1970, though his client left him right after getting his first hit, Space Oddity. As Kit managed Bowie during the singer's most pop and theatre influence phase, some critics have painted him as an old-school manager who was trying to help mould Bowie into an all-round entertainer. Well, you know, you've got to say, Bowie wasn't averse to that idea by the sound of it. That's exactly what Bowie wanted, yeah, wasn't exactly. it? I mean, we know full well that he wanted to be a pop star but he also wanted to be a Svengali and he also wanted to do mime and he also wanted to be in theatre so yeah, yeah. Don't, don't blame Ken you can't blame Ken it says with the art of Bowie finally finding himself when he left Pitt and pioneering uh, glam rock we really you could say but Pitt kind of moulded Bowie in so many ways yeah, it's a great story and, and he seems like a genuinely brilliant fellow yeah, but we'll yeah. get into all that later and in his defence actually Pitt was not inherently averse to straight rock music managing several rock artists most notably Manfred Mann uh, Pitt withdrew from artist management into other parts of the entertainment business after losing Bowie and wrote at length about his relationship with Bowie in his book, Bowie, The Pitt Report. And he was very, very fond of David Bowie, wasn't he? So uh, in the 50s, Pitt did publicity for American artists touring England, such as Frank Sinatra and Duke Ellington, and eventually rock acts like Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah, he'd entered artist management in the 50s with a gypsy singer, Danny Purchess, but his first memorable star client was the band Manfred Mann. He aided in their success by encouraging them to record their big hit, Do Wa Diddy Diddy, but the group dropped him in 65. In the mid-60s, he also handled affairs for one of the few all-women rock bands of the era, Goldie and the Gingerbreads, and the folk-pop singer... Crispy and St. Peter's. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, if you look at you look at Kemp here, uh, from, from the distance, but, you know, and I've heard him speak and everything, and you'd have to say he's cut from the same cloth, probably, as Brian Epstein. Yeah, I mean, I know when uh, Bob Dylan first came over for his first tour of the States, it, it was Ken Pitt doing the promo with him, you know? Yeah, he, he's a very influential man, and we will drop a real uh, humdinger in in a short while. Mm. But anyway, in late 1965, Pitt was approached by Ralph Horton, previously discussed, then managing David Jones, who had yet to change his name to David Bowie, who was in search of a managerial partner. Partner. Now, this is because of some difficulties, isn't it? Uh, in finances. <laughs> We've done that. <laughs> uh, when Pitt finally saw Bowie in 1966, he was impressed and did share managerial duties with Horton for a while before he was officially taken on as Bowie's sole manager in April 1967. Bowie's recordings in the Pitt era, particularly those of 1966 to 68, are often savaged by rock critics for their fey Anthony Newley influence and light, sometimes invisible traces of actual rock and roll. Again, that was what Bowie was mad on, Anthony Newley. It was. And more, more so than Ken Pitt, as yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, he wanted to be Anthony Newley, didn't he? So as Pitt was also working to help Bowie make inroads into theatre and film, some have felt the manager was trying to get his protégé into the mainstream entertainment world, mm. which isn't a bad thing. That shouldn't be a, you know, a destructive thing. No, not necessarily, but it seems to be slightly weighted against Ken Pitt in, in this biography. Yeah, yeah, but, sure. but this is, to be fair, this is often how he's seen and, and, mm. and will hopefully correct some of it. Yeah, hopefully. So writing in an illustrated record, which is the first Bowie book, 
I ever got uh, by Roy Carr and Charles Shaw Murray of The Enemy. They say, in his last attempt to conform to Kenneth Pitt's demands and expectations, Bowie participated in two continental song festivals, one in Malta, one in Italy, held in August of 1969, performing When I Live My Dream from the first album. Right, OK. So while Pitt may not have been the most suitable manager for Bowie in the long term, that's probably true. In his defence, it should be pointed out that he did a great deal for the singer in his early career. And uh, again, it was mentioned previously that uh, Tony DeFries did call an audit on uh, Ken Pitt's uh, mm. accounts for David Bowie, just wondering if uh, he'd been you know, secreting money away and stuff. And they found out that uh, Ken Pitt had been undercharging David Bowie. Yeah. It was quite the opposite, yes. so bless him. Uh, first of all, he helped sustain him with money and encouragement, Yep, at a time when Bowie was failing to make any commercial headway in pop, accumulating five years of failures before Space Oddity, a song which also uh, Ken Pitt had a hand in instigating. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know. Also, of course, the Anthony Newley phase was not something that Pitt forced upon Bowie, as discussed. It was one of the many transitions that Bowie went through, albeit not a particularly uh, successful commercial one. And this is why Bowie got that awful reputation as being the chameleon of rock, wasn't it? Because he went through all these different transitions, you know, and just picking up lots of influences and dropping them at times. Under the influence of his wife, Angie, Bowie grew more distant from Pitt after Space Oddity, and by the early 70s, Pitt had been dumped in favour of Tony DeFries, main man. In Todd Haynes' movie, Velvet Goldmine, a fictionalised treatment of glamour, Rock, the early manager of the star, Brian Slade, was based largely on Kenneth Pitt. Meanwhile, the character Cecil seems largely based on Kenneth Pitt, although the caricature makes him out to be a more pathetic and ineffectual figure than Pitt likely ever was. Uh, Pitt abandoned artist management to concentrate upon consulting work with foreign acts touring the UK. Now, at this point in time, uh, we've both heard an interview between uh, Paul Morley and uh, Ken Pitt. And, mm. uh, and I think it's from, is it from like 1984? I I'm guessing something. it went just because, you know, the pit came out in 83, didn't it? So I'm guessing it was promotion for that. Yeah, OK. And and Paul, it has to be said, Paul Morley seems really aggressive towards mm. Ken Pitt, who just retains a very gentlemanly-like status right throughout. Uh, he does he does mainly, because he's quite antagonistic, Paul Morley, yeah, yeah. and it's hard to work out why. Um, but uh, Paul Morley's going, and I think Paul Morley's angle is a bit like, oh, you're jumping on the Bowie bandwagon, because Bowie was massive at this point in time. Yeah, of course. You know, and uh, we know he wasn't a leech of Bowie's career anyway. Mm. We've already mm. uh, uh, found that much out. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, he was saying, so you've just released an autobiography now. What a coincidence. I think that was what Paul Molly was saying. Well, I think he was at. getting at the gist. Of, one of the things that I think he was trying to say was, um, you know, why would anybody be interested in what Bowie was doing before he got famous? And, of course, you know, everybody wants to know that stuff, don't they, really? You know, the ins and outs of how he shaped himself. That's the thing you really want to know. I mean, everybody knows what Bowie was up to after 1972, mm. don't they? You know, I mean, if you've got any day now, you certainly know day by day. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, yeah, he's life was uh, very public so the stuff that led up to it before particularly if you consider how confusing it was which we talked mm. about before with you know the various albums being re-released with a ziggy cut on it so you've got you know a, a david bowie being re-released as space oddity with the with the ginger spiky hair on it you've got the world of david bowie with the curly cover and you've got the bowie uh, the same album with the ziggy cut yeah so you did need to know all of these things and you needed to know where laughing gnome came from in the middle of ziggy and all that kind yeah of, of stuff. course i remember buying the pit report for that reason because it was all kind of smoke and merry you know obviously pre-internet days here yeah so you're just trying to find out bits and and, and bobs about bowie's back catalogue and his biography that you perhaps couldn't really piece together and it is dry 
dry and it is spotty, but it serves a purpose. But Ken Pitt's reply to Paul Morley was great. He said, it's not an autobiography, it's a report. And it is called, yeah. the you know, the report. Yeah. It's the Pitt report. So, I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and, uh, and you know, again, talking about Kevin Can and, uh, and, and he's done so much stuff with Bowie. We can talk about other stuff apart from any day now. Um, but um, but he's a mate of Ken Pitt's. Okay. Right. And uh, he's, he's told me, he's told me some amazing things about him and he knows him better than anybody else that I've ever spoken to. Right. And he think, and he says he's a, a wonderful man and a really generous and kind fella. And 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 we will believe him one thousand percent. Yeah. And okay. um and and so uncredited for so many things. So let's pick up on the Bowie timeline here. According again to Any Day Now, Wednesday, fifteenth of September, nineteen sixty-five, Ralph Horton visits Ken Pitt at his offices in Curzon Street to discuss whether Pitt is interested in becoming interested in the lower third Bowie's band and David in particular. Pitt's never even heard of Bowie, and he says that his client list is full, but agrees to attend a performance pretty soon. Pitt also advises Horton to persuade David to change his stage name. So, a uh, great move already. He wisely suggested this because Davy Jones, yet to be a member of the Monkees, but already having made his name playing the Artful Dodger on Broadway production of Oliver, is becoming famous. So, Friday the 17th of September. So this is the wording of the letter uh, written by Ralph Horton to Ken Pitt about Bowie's uh, stage name change. All right. So he said, Dear Ken, may I say I enjoyed our meeting the other day and it was indeed a pleasure to be introduced to you. I've taken the liberty of writing to you and, and advising you I've now changed Davy's name to David Bowie. In the meantime, I look forward to hearing from you with any suggestions you may have and I'll forward to you, as suggested, a copy of the record when they become available. Yours sincerely, Ralph Horton. Right, so good work. At Ken Pitt's instruction. Yes. Uh, so Sunday, the 21st of August, 1966, Bowie plays a marquee with the buzz and Ken Pitt is hatching a plan to turn Bowie into a star of stage and screen. 20th of October now, 1966, Bowie and the Buzz play in Southampton and Pitt goes to see uh, Tony Hall, who was head of promotion at Decca at that point, and he plays Hall an acetate of rubber band, which really impresses Hall. He says, I must say, I just flipped. This guy had such a different sound, such a different approach. And he also went to see... Uh, Hugh Mendel, who was then the artist manager at Decca, wasn't he? A very influential figure and the man who signed the Rolling Stones. He also liked what he heard and another meeting was arranged for Mendel to hear more of Bowie's stuff. Right, 24th of October, Pitt meets Hugh Mendel again in the company of producer Mike Vernon, who's an important character in Bowie's career, on the strength of the recordings of The Gravedigger and London Boys. And Mendel offers Pitt a recording contract for David with the Decca offshoot DRAM. So already Ken Pitt has started to move Bowie's career along at a pace, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, definitely. 25th of November now, meeting with his backing band The Buzz at Ken Pitt's office. The musicians are told there's no money to pay them. Instead of leaving, they offer to carry on working for free. Mm. Uh, the band fizzled out, of course, even though they're already recording Bowie's debut album. Yeah, it's pretty sad all that, yeah. wasn't it? So, uh, December 1966, famously Ralph Horton, still co-managing Bowie with Pitt, secures a £500 publishing contract with Essex Music. This despite the fact that Pitt has already agreed a £1,000 deal <laughs> with the possibility of a £30,000 publishing deal overtaking both of these agreements. So, Ooh, uh, yeah. these little chinks um, in the armour there, isn't Yeah, there? that liaison was never going to last, was it? So, the 16th of December now, 1966, Ken Pitt returns from his overseas trip to the States. This is where, this is a pivotal moment as well. Uh, Munger's presence for David is a test pressing of the album The Velvet Underground and Nico, given to him personally by Andy Warhol during a visit to uh, Warhol's studio The Factory in November. Yeah, so uh, with the name Warhol scrawled on the la 
label. This becomes one of Davies' most treasured possessions. So Bowie in 2002, the first track glided by innocuously enough and didn't really register. However, from that point on, with the opening throbbing, sarcastic bass, love that, and guitar of I'm Waiting for the Man, the linchpin, the keystone of my ambition, was driven home. Yeah, big light bulb goes on there. So, Ken Pitt did make an impression on Bowie with this gift, which has, you know, been unequalled by any other manager he had before or since, it has to be said. Well, this is a story that uh, Kevin can tell me. So, um, Ken Pitt went over to America and he went over because he wanted to look after the Velvet Underground mm. interests in the UK. So, it wasn't a case that he just brought this record back and wasn't aware of what it was. He loved them. And the the, the, the story that floored me, that uh, Kevin told me, was the fact that he has seen the paperwork which uh, involves bringing the Velvet Underground over from New York to London in mm. 1967 to do a performance at the Roundhouse. Wow. And there is visa documents there. There's also all of the passport details for all of the Velvet Underground, the whole kit and caboodle, bringing them over with Andy Warhol. Mm. The BBC apparently were also supposed to be running Warhol films. Right. Uh, so it was just going to be a massive, massive art event, uh, which would have... I mean, people now still talk about the Doors playing at the yeah. Roundhouse. If the Velvet Underground had to come over oh. in 1967, I don't even know how quickly that would have changed the whole face of music over here. It might have come and gone, but it might have been one of those really massively explosive nights that really just sets everybody oh, absolutely. off. Because the cliche being that, you know, not many people bought the Velvet Underground's first album, but everybody who did went out and formed a band. Yeah, yeah. Lord knows if there was like three and a half thousand people watching them in London that night as they were doing all of that really, really unbelievable, crazy, edgy stuff. What kind of an, uh, an effect that would have had yeah. on the, the British music scene? I'm guessing too, with all the light shows as well, it would be the whole caboodle, wouldn't yeah, it? You know, all, yeah. You know, plastic exploding, inevitable, all that stuff. So what, what made that not happen? You know? I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure. And, okay. and one day, I mean, hopefully um, Kevin will, uh, will you know, release another book or an annex okay. to one of his previous publications and uh, and the story will come out. But that that, oh. that floored me, that, because that's such an amazing story and shows, again, you know, that, uh, yeah, Ken Pitt really was committed to the Velvet Underground thing and, and, and understood it. And a visionary, it, you know? Yeah, and somebody who's perceived to be so square. Exactly. You know, um, yeah. embracing who were the band that were the most out there band in the world at that point in time. Without a doubt. So January 1967, Bowie becomes disillusioned in Horton's managerial ability and looks towards engaging Pitt solely as his manager. Horton, well in debt by this time, was more than happy to disappear from the scene. <laughs> and disappear he did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we can hear him. Oh, there goes Ralph. There we go. Totally down the road. Uh, they became very close over the following months. This is Bowie and Pitt. Uh, Bowie moving into Pitt's apartment with him for some time, socialising, going to the movies, going to the musical, went to see Oliver together, didn't they? Right, OK. Well, I think we've covered Ken and hopefully uh, done him a decent service there. And uh, we're just going to read out a couple of paragraphs now from the Pitt report that, uh, that Ken Pitt did. On my return from America and Australia, I'd given David the albums I'd bought him from New York, that of the Velvet Underground and a zany group I'd heard in Greenwich Village called the Fugs. He adored both of them, and particularly liked I'm Waiting for the Man on the Former and Dirty Old Man on the Latter, both of which he used in his act. This was the very first time he'd heard of Lou Reed, and such was his enthusiasm for the American artist that I was more interested than ever in bringing Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground to Britain. What if they formed a mutual admiration society with Warhol and the Velvet singing David's praises in America? That is great, isn't it? Love yeah, that. so forward-thinking. Brilliant. 
Okay, again from the Pitt Report, this is uh, Ken Pitt. There was, of course, a great deal of routine work to be done for David, but it was never dull because it was not without challenge. The smallest chore held great expectations of things to come. May the 5th was a typical day. 27 letters were sent to BBC radio and TV producers telling them about the forthcoming album, each letter being personal to the producer and individually typed. A demonstration tape Bowie had made of his song Love You Till Tuesday was sent to Peter Grant at uh, Rack Records. A tape of three other songs of David's was sent to John Burgess, the titles being Going Down, Summer Kind of Love and Everything Is You. A letter was sent to the Friends Provident and Century Life offices about renewing the premium on David's life policy. Blimey. And the wording being, ask them if I can have an advance, David has said. <laughs> a note was sent to Mark Exiger of Decker's Paris office telling him that David's parents were to spend a few days in Paris and would like to see him and so on. Uh, OK, so this is where it takes a turn for the worst, at least for Kempit. David and DeFries arrived promptly at five. Both were dressed in the uniforms of their respective callings. David shaggy and satiny, DeFries neatly suited in brown, a conservative tie, his hair short and tidy. David sat on the chaise long and stared straight ahead of him. He said nothing. DeFries said he was a lawyer who helped people in the music business, amongst them Tony Visconti. This led me to initially suspect that it was Visconti who had brought DeFries into the picture. Now that the lawyer was within the frame, I quickly realised that I was no longer looking at a portrait of David, but studying a broad landscape on which DeFries was a prominent feature in the foreground. David had still not uttered a word and remained sitting upright, his shiny eyes fixed on the wall in front of him. I made one or two pertinent remarks in an attempt to alert him to my worst fears, but he was beyond hearing. I formed the opinion that he was either stoned or posing as one who was. If a smile was seen to cross my face, it was because I'd been reminded of a doubtlessly malicious story I'd been told about Bob Dylan's management who, it was alleged, kept him happily compliant in the country surrounded by hemp fields. Ooh. Perhaps all that had happened was that DeFries had ordered, don't say a word, I'll do all the talking. But I like to think that David had sought to reduce the pain of an unwelcome meeting. That must have been a difficult moment for Ken Pitt. Yeah, and uh, you would think it would be pretty uncomfortable for Bowie as well because they were very close and they'd done an awful lot for him. But as we know, Bowie was very ambitious, wasn't he? And yeah. So uh, uh, he'd gone for it. Yeah. So we move on now. He says, I did not see David again until the 10th of May 1973, by which time he'd finally achieved the great success for which he'd so long striven. He and Angela sprang a surprise on me by turning up on my doorstep in Manchester Street soon after their return from Japan. They both looked marvellous. We leapt into each other's arms and hugged and kissed and made such a commotion that the German nurse of the doctor on the ground floor looked out to see what was going on. Uh, Staring at David's red hair, pink flare trouser suit and yellow platform boots, she muttered, "'Got in Himmel!' and quickly shut the door." All right, Angela, chic in black, sat herself on the lounge floor. David instinctively chose just the right setting for himself, the Victorian green velveted chaise long. Uh, when he got up to make some coffee, I joined him in the kitchen, but it was as if he'd never been away. He knew exactly where to find the coffee, the crockery and spoons. <laughs> this is great. He seemed to me uh, to be a relaxed, more assured version of the old David. He asked about old friends and places he'd remembered and suggested we had dinner together one night. Uh, we took the coffee into the lounge and Angela asked if I'd like to 
tickets for one of the Earl's Court concerts. Yes, Sir David, come and see what your boy is doing. So that's sweet, and it's good to know that they did uh, make up. And I don't know if they had any kind of uh, future, you know, over the last few years of David's life, I can't imagine that they had too much cross-pollination, but you never know. No. And like I say, I mean, I did see Kevin Can, omnipresent, in the company of uh, Ken Pitt at the uh, the uh, opening, the preview, oh, if yeah. you like, of the uh, David Bowie's at the V&A. And he, did, he, he looked pretty frail at that point in time, but that was a good few years ago, and, uh, you know, and he's still with us. Yeah. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... The King Bees, Krautrock, Stanley Kubrick, The Kinks, 